0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am very excited to be joined by Stephanie Land. I know that you will all remember Made, incredible memoir, as well as TV series that came out on Netflix, but now I cannot wait to talk about her newest book, Class a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. And I want to talk about all of those things because I think there are so many pieces of your story that will really relate to so many people in our country that I think don't get their stories told very often or don't get them told in a way that is understandable and authentic. because. In our country, I don't think we look at a lot of things that are really important. And so I'm very excited that you decided to continue your story and to continue this journey for us. So I'd like to start by setting up where we are at the beginning of class versus the end of Made, and sort of what started this piece of the journey for you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I, was, uh, I did the Barnes & Noble podcast for MAID as well. So this is this is quite a treat. So MAID ended like right after we moved to Missoula, I think like three or four months after. Um, it was like our first spring there, which was 2012. And class begins at the beginning of fall semester for um, my senior year of college and um, Amelia's kindergarten year. So first year of public school. Uh, and that is the beginning of or the fall of 2013. So. A little bit of a lapse, and um I do kind of go back and talk about stuff that happened between those two time periods, but for the most part, it picks up right where made left off um, and is just kind of a, a pivotal year for both of us.
0: It's definitely a moment of transition. I think we hit that pretty quickly. You realize, oh, this isn't exactly where we were before and Though some struggles have maybe alleviated a little bit, there's always something on the horizon that seems pretty daunting and pretty heavy. And yet, I think the thing that came through to me so quickly and so prevalently with both of your works, but with this specifically, is this idea of resiliency. And I think that means something different to you than I think it would mean to a lot of people. That idea of just pushing forward and just continuing. I mean, as I was reading, I there's moments where you can't imagine what could possibly come next, and yet you continue, and you still write. And I just think that resilience you show through this and through all of your life is something that people will really key into quickly.
1: One aspect of the book that I um, very purposely did was really challenge that idea of resiliency and point out that a lot of what we think of as resilience to marginalized communities, it's more of a forced acceptance. And I call it resilience training. And what that really meant to me was I was not allowed to have emotion. There's a line in the book wh- that I say, I didn't have the privilege to feel because it w- it was the societal aspects that, that were surrounding us um, were so relentless I, I couldn't stand up and argue about things or get angry about things um, because there was no point. It, the what mattered was finding food and staying marginally, you know, housing secure um, and and getting some some bills paid and seeing the college through to the end. And so. I think this, uh, the year that I chose to write about is kind of peak stubbornness for me <laughs> and just seeing things through, you know, no matter what gets thrown at us.
0: I think so often resilience is like a, a, a trait that people are like, oh, isn't that child so resilient? Isn't that, you know, young person that they've had to deal with? Because even in this, you know, you're older than a lot of your peers, but you're still a young person as you're going through this and you're navigating life with another young person. And I think so often people are like, Oh, the resilience, but are we, is that really like the trait that we're calling it? Is that really what it is? Because so often, like you said, what people are calling resilience, there's no choice. What's the alternative?
1: Yeah. It really started bothering me even at the time of the book when people started calling my, my child resilient and even i then you know saw it as like well no she just can't really communicate <laughs> you know the things that she's going through and i think people mistake that for resilience um but it also seems like the you got this culture and this like call upon your inner strength and and all of that i think It's easier to do that than to recognize that there are a lot of systems in place that are forcing me to live that way and and to um, be in this situation where we didn't have enough and we are struggling to survive. To put all of the responsibility on me to be, you know, quote unquote, resilient is a lot easier than saying, well, actually, we are not taking care of our children in this country and, and we are not supplying them with adequate food you know that like food is a pretty basic need and and it's still a debate whenever we talk about even you know free lunch programs i mean there are children in this country with a school lunch debt and and that just baffles my mind and
0: i think it's such a blatant like misunderstanding and choice to not engage with the reality of class divide and of poverty in this country. I mean, you, th- you talk about kids with school lunch debt, and it's also like the idea that even children shouldn't get to enjoy, you know, if you've got a hot lunch at your school, which is pizza and a burger, but if you have free lunch or, you know, reduced lunch, you get a peanut butter sandwich and a milk. And we have this idea that these kids will be fine or these people will be fine on less because they're used to it or because that's, you know, the expectation. And it just perpetuates this continuing stereotype and view of a group of people that have enough things that they're already managing.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I've been writing about this stuff for a while. (laughs) Uh, And I've been writing about it very publicly at first, like on the Internet, where there's a lot of comment sections and, um, and people can form a lot of opinions and, and make those opinions known. And I think it's really easy to blame um, mothers, especially single moms. Um, And that, that was a lot of my motivation in, in both of these books was trying to show that single moms are actually very good mothers and their children are deserving of, of everything that two parent households with, you know, a decent income have for me, it was it was um, trying to create some empathy for poor parents and and parents who are are working all the time and and may seem neglectful because of that,
0: and I think there is such a distinct stigma and sort of narrow view of motherhood in this country as to what is a successful mother and who is a successful mother and who is a worthy mother. And yet, that narrow view doesn't apply to most people, even if they're in any walk of life or any circumstance. I mean, I think most people, if you ask them to describe that thing, it's such a specific view
1: that most people didn't have. Yeah. I mean, I think mothers are judged widely anyway, you know, even very privileged moms, you know, whether they're working or they're not, like if they homeschool or they put my kid in private or public school. And I mean, you can get judged for everything when you're a mom. Uh, you can get judged for staying in your pajamas all day. I mean, but when it comes to single moms, it, I I just felt like I could never be enough. And any choice that I made was considered a bad choice because I I didn't have any good choices. And I think that's something that people don't really know or realize is is that when you are in that position of of just struggling to make ends meet and every dollar that you get is very meaningful and and important there really aren't a lot of great choices to make i mean you're you're kind of choosing the better of two very bad you know i can't think of any other word to say but, but you know what most would consider a bad decision um, and and i think you know a lot of what i've been thinking about you know since i've written the book and and just kind of um trying to get an outsiders view of me as a character in that book from a you know the privileged position that i am now i still struggle with a lot of mental health issues but like i i have anxiety, I had PTSD. And I still had all of those things when, when I was, um, extremely poor and I, I didn't have access to therapy or medication or very good coping mechanisms. Even I, I try to keep that in mind as well of, as I go forth on this book tour and, and talk to a lot of people about my decisions in this book, um, I I want to keep that at the forefront of my mind and and just have a lot of compassion for myself then is, you know, I, I personally don't know how I got through that year and somehow I did. Um, So, I mean, any decision that I made to have my roommate watch my child so I could go out for the night and see a band. I mean, that was coping.
0: And again, I think it goes to, there's this idea, you know, I, Not to keep going to them, this greater them, but the idea that, oh, if you're in those situations, every cent must go towards these, what are quote unquote necessities, even though human beings cannot live in without a happy meal sometimes, or, you know, getting to go out and experience human things like going to a concert or rock climbing or the things that you enjoyed. And there's this like weird thing of, well, but I wouldn't do that, even though most of the people saying that have never even been relatively close to having to have to make that decision of how to spend their money in that way.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard it all. The, the rice and beans diet, you know, like I should just live off rice and beans. Well, you live off rice and beans.
0: <laughs> yeah, if it's See, so easy, everyone <laughs> would do it and be millionaires, right? Like it, it doesn't work like that. And I think especially because, like you said, you were faced with all these sort of impossible choices. And one of the things that you were so determined to do because it felt like the right choice was to get an education. And so many people would say, well, you need an education in order to better yourself, improve your standards of living, whatever. And yet education is not designed for anyone outside of the traditional student of, you know, right out of high school parent support, family support.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think that is really the most important part of what I'm trying to show in this book of just when you are designing a curriculum and you only have one type of student in mind, you're doing one in five of your students a disservice. I mean, there's. There's a good probability that that one in five of your students is a parent, and and is probably working full time, and or have people that they care for at home. Um, you know, I think the statistics right now are are pretty grim. But close to twenty five percent of your students are are food insecure, and so when you start to consider the possibility of your classroom being diverse and having individual needs then your curriculum might possibly bend a little bit <laughs> to, to meet some of those needs. And and, um, and I, I think just the smallest changes can make or break whether or not a, a person signs up for the next semester. And I think it's
0: so, I mean, you face people telling you both things of you have to go to school, you have to finish school, and people saying if you just got a real job if you just quit if you just you know buckle down don't think about being a writer because that's you know how are you gonna make money doing that all these things there's everyone has their own opinions and I think when you are at a certain place in life everyone thinks that their opinion applies to you and they could just freely tell you regardless of you know whether we should be doing that to other people or not and the way that you were able to Articulate those moments of being so uncertain of whether or not you were doing the right thing. Like, I could just feel that, though I've not been in those moments exactly, that feeling of your life in two paths in front of you, and you have to make that choice. And I think watching you through this work continue with your school because it was clearly something that was survival for you. I think writing, it seems, is your survival. And I think people will really be able to resonate, even though they are coming from different places.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, I, I do consider myself a pretty good mom. I mean, my, my kids are amazing, but I, I don't really take a lot of credit for that. But as a mother, you know, even when I was in school, um, I always kind of imagined um, me and, you know, the words that I would describe myself with you know as like a shelf a shelving system. <laughs> uh because I'm I'm a Virgo and I'm very very much like that. Um but you know the top shelf was always a writer and and it was I I didn't call myself a mom when people asked me well like what do you do or you know like I I would never put like I'm Amelia and Coraline's mom in my like bio for Twitter, you know, something like that. Like Like, no, I'm I'm a writer. And, and I really felt that that was important to keep that identity. I didn't want to raise kids who think that that is their life's purpose is to like, well, once you have kids, you're just a mom and that's it. Like that's, that's, that's absolutely not true. Once you have kids, you just have children to care for.
0: (laughs) I think also, I mean, I'm not a parent, but that idea that keeping that trueness to yourself and saying, you know, I'm a writer and I care for these children, I think it shows so much more commitment because you're not losing yourself in it. You're not losing yourself in this world that it's very easy to sort of flatten out and lose the things that define us because life is hard and it will always be hard. But The way that you write and the voice that you have on the page, I mean, I don't think there was any way that you wouldn't be a writer.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) And I
0: think especially this idea of writing is survival. There's so much in this where the urgency of what you were telling. I mean, obviously, this is you looking back, but you can feel how connected you were in those moments of like, this is who I have to be in order to keep going.
1: Part of you know my my uh, college journey um, was a lot of uncertainty, and and I I started off you know just taking classes to work toward a um, an AA degree. You know you get a two year degree from community college, um, and then I declared you know I was going to be a paralegal, and then like I was going to be a sociologist, or or um, kind of I wanted to be like a DV domestic violence advocate. Um, and, and went through all of these things that I felt like I was supposed to do. And just once I got to campus and, and walked around and saw all of these buildings, it was just like, no, like, I gotta, I gotta try. I have to try because I just, I knew if I didn't at least try to be a writer, I didn't really think I could ever truly be happy. And, and that mattered a lot to me. I feel like I I was entitled to that. But there are a lot of people who don't believe that. Just because I, I should have just gone straight and gotten a job um, and and worked and did what I needed to do to um, be a contributing member of society and you know all of that and get off of food stamps. But um, I, I was doing that. I was just finding a different way.
0: And I think the idea that we have to sort of give up our passions and our dreams and our pieces of ourselves that are core tenets and things that are a part of us just to contribute and just to, you know, do what society, what other people tell us to do, which sounds very easy to just say, oh, no, I'm going to follow my dreams no matter what. But sometimes when they're in front of us and we can see a way, even if that way is challenging and has uncertainties, I think, like you said, we owe it to ourselves. We deserve it to continue and to do that
1: yeah well and i think you know when you're talking about the arts and humanities and just making art usually when when school systems are making budget cuts that's the first program to go um and and i i think that's a tragedy i i think there are a lot of brilliant artists in this country who just cannot afford to be that and and i i think that you know investment into that would 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 be amazing. Expression of art is is how we learn about people and and how, you know, you have a stack of books behind you. Like that's learning about people. If we only support a certain type of person in order to do that, then we're not going to learn anything. We're just going to learn about white men.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more connecting, I think for so many people than to enter into a book, whether it's fiction, whether it's memoir whether it's social sciences. We seek these stories different from our own, or we would hope that people are seeking stories different from their own in order to form a sense of community that's bigger than something you can create just by, you know, going online. And, you know, there's so many other ways to create community, but there's nothing quite like finding a book that, like, speaks to you or a writer's voice that speaks to you in a certain way. It really opens your eyes. In
1: a specific way, yeah, I mean i I hear uh, the word "brave" a lot tossed around, uh, in my presence to you know describe uh, me. Writers often write to no longer feel alone for me personally, um I'm writing the story that I desperately needed when I was going through it um because there just there really weren't any out there, and i I searched for them, and and it was it was so hard you know to be so alone and and to just try and find anyone out there who was going through what you were going through and not be able to find it and so it's very important to me that there's um access to my story first of all and 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 that people are able to read it and and feel validated
0: absolutely i mean so often people say like I think people maybe who aren't as into reading or as used to it, they think of it as like a reading and writing as like solitary experiences. But for me, it's like the complete opposite. That's when I feel like the most connected to the world is when I am hearing someone's voice and getting to know it and getting to understand it. And I think there's so much, like you said, of um, being able to have this wealth of stories, this wealth of experience, because not everyone is going to be a writer, but I think everyone can be a reader. Everyone, there is a story for everyone. There is a book for everyone. Um, and that doesn't just mean physical, it's audiobooks, it's ebooks, it's all of it. And I think there's so much processing that we can do about ourselves when we see someone else's story and go, oh, they went through that too. It just is an extra thing so many people will need.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the. The first person narrative um I think is is the thing that has the um chance of creating a lot of change in our our country as a whole. Um, you know i I think that is what turns into to empathy and and compassion for others. I think that it's so important to lift up other people's experiences as well,
0: and I think especially in your narratives, there's no, like you don't pull a lot of punches with us. You're putting things out there, you know, as they were in a way that I think will make some people uncomfortable or make some people unsure because it is raw and it is real. And you're talking about things that go beyond just, okay, here were my struggles, but you're talking about really the long-term effects of poverty on a human being, like mental health, physical health. There's so much more than just oh, I used to not have a lot of money and now I do, so it's okay. You know, like that is not
1: what you're putting out there for us. No, I mean, I kind of feel that way sometimes now. I mean, like I'm a public speaker and so I um, travel around the country talking about, you know, I feel like this one time that I was poor. And so um, I do kind of feel that way sometimes, but I mean, in the in the books, um, it it was very important to me to almost literally put myself back in that place of, um, I'm a very visual writer um, and, and, you know, can kind of like put myself in a room in my head and like look around and see like clutter that needs to be cleaned up. And as a writer and as a human, it's very hard to live through all of that again and uh, talk to people about it all the time. But the I I think it's really important to be able to um, put yourself back in those places.
0: And especially in the sense that as I was reading, I mean, obviously there are incredibly hard things that you have to put back on the page and the readers have to encounter. But at the same time, you find this balance in your voice, which is biting and funny and has, you know a wit to it that I think people will really appreciate. But also in both Maid and Class, something that strikes me again and again is just how much love is in these books. That, you know, the love for your daughters, the love for, you know, the little moments in your life that make everything else sort of fall into place, that without those things as well, yeah, this book could be really hard to read. And there are definitely times where it still is hard to read. But there is a balance. And there is, like I said, just so much love that you can feel when you read.
1: Yeah. I mean, and selfishly, those are my favorite parts. I didn't have baby books for my kids, and I I didn't, I took a lot of pictures. These two books have kind of been an opportunity for me to preserve that time. And my oldest goes by her middle name now of Story. And um, she's 16 and uh so she has been written about for, for quite a while now. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I, re- I really wanted to capture those moments of, of when she was three and, and four and five and six. And, um, and because it was just us against the world for so long and, um, and it was really hard, but it was really beautiful. And, and I, I really wanted to, to encapsulate, you know, those, those moments with her.
0: I really related to her love of ice cream throughout this entire thing. I was like, that's what I would want to and still do at any
1: opportunity. Oh, man. There's a lady on Goodreads that was, like, upset that my, my kid had so much ice cream. And I'm just like, come on, lady. So that's what
0: is being a kid if not to have the opportunity to eat so much ice cream. I mean, wait till you, I mean, I just want to tell that, like, toddler, like, wait till you're an adult. It's It's there. But I think... That putting all of that out there and having sort of your life on display, I can't, I'm sure you have been asked like what it feels like to have your life out there for people to read, especially when I think there is also an expectation when you are receiving assistance or when you are under these things that people have access to your story more than they normally would, because you have to provide all this information to agencies and to schools and to It feels like you just have to keep putting yourself out there in order to get these things. And now, again, to put it out there for the world, it has to be like I can't imagine it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, because it's got to be a lot.
1: It is. And I guess you just kind of helped me realize something (laughs) like it has been that way. I mean, um, I have a horse now and, and he just had to go see the vet and it turns out she's a fan of mine. And, and she was talking about like the same thing. Like, you know, I, I just can't imagine just putting it all out there all the time. Like I, I, I don't know how you do it. Cause I'm, I'm in real life. I'm, I'm a really introverted and and try to be private person. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, the government assistance and safety net programs are so invasive. Um, and it was it was almost alarming to me to go from um, being in programs, you know, like um, housing assistance and child care and and all of this, like to to not needing those programs and and to just pay for it. And I didn't have to tell them my work schedule. I didn't have to tell them, like, when I am working and when I am not working, like down to the minute, like I didn't have to. I didn't have to tell them anything. I just, I paid the same bill that, you know, these government assistance programs are paying, but in order for the government to pay for it, I had to somehow like prove that I was actually doing the thing that I said that I was doing. And and it took me a long time to to kind of get over that impulse of, of feeling like I needed to explain everything and it took a long time to get used to being a freelancer who worked at home and I, I could afford childcare at that point because most of freelancing is, is administrative work <laughs> and, and, you know, invoicing and pitching and, and emailing. And, um, and I just, I felt like I wasn't working and I, I had to keep telling myself like, no, 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 I'm working. It's fine. Like, because I didn't feel like I deserved childcare. And it, it was just wild to me. but yeah, I, I, I maybe it's just uh, normal for me to tell everybody everything, because <laughs> I kind of went straight from food stamps to to a book deal. so
0: and then to a series, a streaming series where everyone really gets the opportunity to see what your life was and, you know, have formed their own opinions. but and I can't even imagine. I mean, writing a book is one thing, but then to sort of see on a screen someone acting out your life I mean that has got to just be like around the bend of strange
1: it was um it was hopeful that they fictionalized it and and I mean I knew that they were um to an extent like I knew that there was going to be added characters and that we were going to have different names and um I was really relieved to hear that uh especially for story because. I knew that they were going to focus a lot on the emotional abuse. And, and so I think it would have been really hard if, if they had even used the fictionalized name that I used for her dad, you know, and, and to just, um, make it even that much more real. Um, because it was, it was, uh, it really messed me up. (laughs) Like, uh, what, what was really hard was, was um, when the trailer for the series came out and everybody was, you know, understandably very excited to watch the series, but I had already seen the screeners and, and I knew what was included in episode one and two. (laughs) And, and it was just like, that's the worst time in my life. And it was really hard to separate um, people being excited to watch the series. and people being excited to watch the most horrible things that ever happened to me so uh it it was it was a hard time
0: I can I mean I was gonna say I can imagine but really I can't and I think that that's what puts it beyond it's like you've created these works that provide so much good for people because it offers them an outlet it offers them connection and yet we have to remember, I think, in so many things like memoir, that there's a person behind that, that there's a person who has lived that. And it's easy to say, I loved these books or I loved that show, but I can't imagine being the person on the other side. There is sort of like a grief that comes with some of it as well.
1: Yeah, um, I think, you know, with the series in particular, I struggled a lot with just identity. Um I struggle with that anyway because you know I'm I'm Stephanie the person in my my house and then I'm kind of like Stephanie the author and then you know suddenly I was this like Netflix character named Alex um, who has this bipolar mom and you know a lawyer friend named Regina and and people were asking me about all these fictional things um, and it was really weird from my perspective to have to respond to these questions and. And none of them really were asking about me as a person. And so I, it was kind of on me to remind myself that I am just a person. <laughs> and and like, I am very much a human being. And as much as I try and tell people that, you know, it is it is something that I have learned just to give myself some grace. Does
0: it feel different on the verge of class being published as it did for MADE?
1: Um, I. Yeah. I mean, writing the books were very different because with made, I, I didn't think anybody was going to read it. I mean, most books are, they get printed 5,000 copies. And I thought that that's a good number. (laughs) Like I'll be happy with that. And this book it's, you know, there was a lot more marketing involved and, and, um, I, I have a huge platform you know and and all of this stuff and it's um and people are excited about it and they're talking about it and it was hard to ignore um just kind of knowing that there were going to be a lot of people reading it um but going into book tour i mean book tour is book tour it's you know it's the kryptonite of a writer's soul and um but I feel like I can be angry, you know, and, and, and to really embrace that and to be kind of proud of that. I did have emotion and, and that I'm not apologetic and, and that I am very raw, and, you know, going through some stuff and, and I'm out there, you know, climbing fire escapes and having sex and, you know, and, and so there's stuff in, in class that probably at the end of the day, I am still kind of mortified that people are reading about, but like, It's also like, well, you know, what the hell?
0: (laughs) There, I mean, in relation to that fire escape situation, there were some descriptions in there that I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I was getting a little nervous just reading because I pictured it too much. But um, (laughs) I guess I have to say, because I want to talk about Stephanie, the person a little bit and some of your biggest writing influences, because your voice is so strong. And you see, you know, the way you put emotions and description on the page is so distinct. And I'd love to hear some of your sort of influences as you write.
1: I'm really visual, so I I, I surround myself with photographs and and music. Um, I have my playlist of very sad songs <laughs> to kind of like put myself in this place. And I, I just I really reflect on. Moments that I remember so clearly and and that I can recall and and that and good moments too, that i that I have kind of lived in at times that I needed to. But as far as, you know, influences on finding my voice and stuff, I read memoir um, like textbooks, you know, um because I just I knew I've been a daily writer since I was ten. So I mean, I, finding my voice wasn't really an issue for me it was more um the the craft of of how to put it into a story arc and you know and all of that and how to make it interesting and and you know cut out all the adverbs and and stuff like that (laughs) like um so it was it was more of just um really learning how to to shape it into a story
0: And how I'd like to end it is something I always like to ask people, but what do you hope people leave class with when they finish the book?
1: Selfishly, I I hope people just look at children of poor parents a little differently with a lot more understanding. Some of my favorite comments are hearing from elementary school teachers who who look at the poor kids in their class a little differently and and have said like i i did think that their parents were neglectful and you helped me see that they're not because i i feel like it's such a tragedy that we're not taking care of our kids in this country and of course i hope for bigger things you know i i hope for a lot of change in in government assistance programs and you know that we abolish work requirements and we have health insurance for everybody and childcare and i think the bigger stuff isn't going to happen if we can't change just the fact that we're not really seeing each other.
0: I agree. And I think there's a pretty good chance that people are going to experience that because what you've done with this memoir is really something pretty amazing. So, Stephanie Land, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait for people to read class. It's out now. And if somehow they've missed it, I think they need to pick up Made too. So, thank you so much for being here. Thank
1: you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.